Uh, there are two terms that probably best describe the life of the Apostle Paul. One is preaching and the other one is persecution. In fact, in Galatians 1.23, he referenced his own conversion where he said that people were going around saying, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul's conversion, as most of us understand, was probably the most dramatic reversal of a life that we have ever encountered. In fact, when I'm praying, my wife and I are praying for people that we feel are so far away from God that we don't know how to reach them, I really say, God, remember how you reached Paul. Remember how you met him on the road to Damascus. And I, like you, probably have a lot of friends and family members that you figure that's the only way, if they get struck by a light from heaven or lightning, either one, that somehow that's going to be the thing that's going to open their eyes and turn the direction of their life towards Christ. So that when we look at him, he becomes not only emblematic of the most unreachable and unlikely, but also what a tremendous change in his life and the effectiveness that that brought with it. His preaching, his, his writings are central to the spread of Christianity, uh, central to the formation of, of faith, and also the very foundation of what we would call true biblical Christianity. And I say that with a little bit of emphasis because we are seeing increasingly what I would call aberrant hybrid versions of Christianity, kind of a, a faux kind of Christianity, which is really Jesus minus certain things that we don't particularly care about. That wasn't Paul. So that when we want to say what was the faith that when Jude says we have to contend for the faith that was delivered to us, uh, basically Paul was a definitor of that more so than any other New Testament writer. So as we follow his life and his ministry, which importantly I think need to be understood interchangeably. Paul didn't have his personal life and then his ministry life. Paul's life and his ministry were the same thing, that he lived his faith in every area of his life all the time for all or the entirety of his life. And yet it came at a tremendous personal cost, which is something that in our day and age we seem to not want to talk about much. When he told the Corinthians in his second letter, he says, I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. So that as we follow his life, we follow his ministry, we find just recorded in the book of Acts that on six different occasions, there were attempts made upon his life. Six different times, there were groups of people who really concocted plans and set out to execute those plans to bring Paul's life to an early end, to put him out of commission. Basically, he was one time, he was stoned to death in Lystra, and God miraculously raised him from the dead, which led to probably what he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, about being caught up into the third heaven. I'll let you read that on your own. But three more times he tells us that he was arrested, he was beaten, and he was imprisoned. So that here the great apostle of the faith, when he comes to the city of Ephesus, is a man who has a lot of history. We might say he has a, a, a dossier of his life which reveals one of hardship and difficulty. And we've talked often about Paul said, that's one thing that God guaranteed me. That not only would he use me, but that I would reveal how much I was called to suffer for his naming's sake. <coughs> Excuse me. In the beginning years of his ministries, his enemies were primarily his own countrymen, the Jews. They didn't see him as the apostle. They saw him as an apostate. And according to the tradition and the view of that own time, anybody who apostated should be executed at the soonest opportunity. In fact, we read in chapter 21 where they describe him. This is a man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place, speaking of the temple. Well, first of all, we understand that that was not a true record of Paul's life. But one of the things we find is when we wanted to besmirch somebody or diminish somebody, we rarely <clears throat> give an accurate appraisal of who they are or what they've done. That is the whole idea of what we call ad hominem attacks, where we attack the person and accuse them of things that they're not guilty of. Because the underlying issue was much deeper, as we'll talk about in a moment. 
But in contrast, when Paul began to focus upon the Gentiles, they didn't view him as a heretic or an apostate, but rather as a seditionist and an insurrectionist. In Philippi, we read, for example, in chapter 16, they accuse him, these men are throwing our city into confusion and proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Roman. Now, one of the things that uh, we need to understand is that Christianity at this time was illegal. They had certain religions that they called religio illicita. They were against the law. There were some that were legal. In fact, Judaism had become legal to practice in the Roman Empire, along with a vast majority of other ones. But Christianity or any religious faith you had that wasn't officially approved became suspicious, especially if it impacted the status quo. And one of the things I think is so important for us to grasp is Christianity threatened the very foundations upon which the Roman Empire was built. But we'll get into that further. Into the Thessalonians, we read in chapter 17, they accused him. He says, these men have upset the world and have come here also. They act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, it's in Corinth, they said, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to Roman law. And in Ephesus, as we just read, it says, this fellow has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So as we talked last week, Paul's effectiveness in those two years that he was in Ephesus was profound so that we know a whole score of churches, at least eight or nine that are listed in Scripture, including the seven churches of Revelation, were all the consequence of Paul's ministry and those he sent out to preach the gospel in every city they came to. So as a result, they said what he's done is he's, he said that man-made gods are no gods at all. How outrageous. There is danger, they said, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, from the Greek and Roman point of view, Christianity was atheism. And it sounds strange to us because we use the term atheism to refer to somebody who doesn't believe that there is any God or is trying real hard. To us, to them, an atheist was anybody who didn't accept the pantheon of the gods. In other words, they said there's only one God and they considered that to be a form of atheism because they're denying all of the other gods or they're against the gods. Yet, as our text shows us, as we go through it, Demetrius, the silversmith, his reason for instigating a riot against Paul was not really primarily or essentially a religious one. That was the superficial cover. That one of the things you find historically, not just even in our modern times, but politicians rarely explain really what's going on. They rarely focus on something that is the root of the problem. They like to redirect us to something that can get us all angry and upset about. And so we find as a consequence, what he did was he focused their attention on away from their monetary impact of Paul's message. Because keep in mind, Demetrius was a religious professional. He made a living by crafting these very images that he in turn sold to literally the hundreds of thousands of people who would come to the temple every year. This was a great living, and he points that out. But he doesn't say that to the crowd. What he says to the crowd is, they're causing a threat to our worship and our temple of Artemis, the great goddess. So we might ask the question, why did the people of Ephesus react so strongly against Paul and against the Christians? Well, again, we have to kind of understand the religious and social structure of the Greek and the Roman world. Every city would have a patron god or goddess who was viewed as the protector of that city against harm. And the danger was that if you neglected worshiping that god, she would become or he would become angry and bring all sorts of terrible things in your life. So as a result, if there was famine, if there was drought, if there was flooding, if there was earthquakes, if there were attacks by foreign enemies, or any number of things, diseases and plagues and so forth, the automatic assumption was the gods are punishing us because we haven't done what we're supposed to do. 
you have to also understand it's not like any of these religions had a Bible or anything like that. In fact, they weren't really concerned with their moral or morality or their lack thereof. The whole idea was, let's make sure that the God or the goddess is happy so they'll leave us alone. You know, people who would go to the God and make sacrifices and say, do this for me and do that for me, were often warned, you don't want to invite the gods to get involved in your business because they will extract a payment from you. And they, you know, if you say, give me a wife, then they may kill your children or they may give you a wife and turn her and then kill your wife. We have the story of Midas who wished that everything he could touch could be turned to gold. And the consequence was everything he touched was turned to gold, including his wife, his children, his friends, his favorite dog. Everything became gold. And so the thing he looked for and the blessing became the curse. And so this was the idea that we don't offer and sacrifice and worship the gods because we want to get close to them. We do it so we can keep them away from us. So in the mind of a citizen in Ephesus, if people are besmirching and neglecting and doing bad things or contradicting the worship of their central patron goddess, you're basically inviting all sorts of trouble into your life. Her temple, with 157 marble pillars reaching 60 feet in the air, was considered to be the top wonder of the ancient world. The ancients talked about the seven wonders of the ancient world. Her temple was considered to be at the top of the list. Now, today, if you visit it, you'll find that there are two pillars left. The rest is rubble. So, no matter how great she was back then, she ain't so great now. You know, she's like me. The age has not been kind. So, the point is that they considered themselves to have this magnificent temple, and that's the way the ancient world operated and some of the world today. If you want to prove that your God is greater than the other gods, you build an edifice to them that is greater, more expensive, more extravagant than any other God. You'll even see it in when you go to Israel, you'll see that there's a reason why the, the uh, mosque of Omar, the, the Dome of the Rock, was built right on top of the location of the temple. The idea is that most resplendent, that Islam has won over Christianity, has won over Judaism, and that's why even you'll find the spires of their, their menorahs will, or their temples will reach up high above every other place in the city. The idea is to send a message, our God is bigger than your God. Our God is greater than you. So the nature of the architecture, the building, was all a visual propaganda or advertisement to simply say, this God is the most important God. This is the one you need to worship. And just as it was in Israel in the day of Herod the Great when he built the massive temple, which wasn't the tallest building, but it was the largest structure in the ancient world, He did it because it said the same thing. Look at how great our God is. And it became a source of massive income through tourism. So when Demetrius becomes concerned that if people don't worship Diana, we're going to see our cash flow go downhill. Tourism has been an industry that's been really intact ever since Adam and Eve started showing the tree of life. It goes all the way back that here's a way to make money. And If we don't maintain this facade, maintain this impression, we could find ourselves going through significantly difficult economic times. So people were fearful, and we shouldn't be too harsh on their feelings of being unsafe. In fact, it's believed that the very name Artemis comes from a root word in Greek that means to be safe. She was the patron goddess of women, and uh, young girls, and of a safe childbirth, which was a big deal. In an age when 50% of women and children died in the process of childbirth, not just losing their children, but women often died in childbirth. Worshiping a goddess who was supposed to guarantee that you would be healthy and you'd survive and you'd have healthy kids was part and parcel of the whole idea of your worship and of your offerings. To change gods would be a rather radical step. And that's where we have to understand that we look at our culture and we think, how do we change the thinking of people in our culture? Well, it's not going to come from using your best argument or having them watch a program or even necessarily coming to some, listen to some windbag like me, as brilliant as I may be in my own mind. 
The simple reality is that there has to be an interaction of the Holy Spirit with people's hearts. That when we look at Paul, that he was really the direct opposite of anything that the culture in Ephesus would have admired. He wasn't tall. He was short. He wasn't young. He was very old. He wasn't healthy. He had all sorts of infirmities. His speech was not eloquent. In fact, one ancient writer said it was more like a squeaky kind of sound in a high-pitched nasally nose. I mean, and, and you realize that there, well, he didn't have a, a flashy wardrobe. In other words, there was, in the same way that Isaiah said about Jesus, that there was no comeliness, no beauty, nothing in outward attractiveness that would have attracted us to him. And the fact that we don't pay attention to that is really one of the biggest faults the church has fallen into. Because we've come to the idea that how do we reach people for Christ? Well, we need to market the church. And if you want to market something, you've got to make it look really, really good. And so, you know, the message saying, come, follow me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me is not really one that resonated with people. When God says to him, I'll show you, Paul, how much you must suffer for my namesake, that's the kind of message you just simply say, could we stop at the first half of the prophecy? The good part about the things I'm going to accomplish, not what is going to be the price that I'm going to pay. What I'm saying to you, friend, is that we don't reach our culture, we don't reach the world by being fabulous or by being contemporary, or hip, or woke, or any other thing, however you want to describe it. How do we reach the culture? In a sense, by allowing the Holy Spirit to live in us, and to speak as those who are governed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because all conversions come ultimately because God saves, not you, not me. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. So the very fact that this was having a rapid spread within the city of Ephesus is somewhat amazing. And yet it grew so much that it began to overflow into other places. And yet when the city is threatened, they believe, by a religion that's going to cause the goddess of that city, the patron god of that city, to get angry with them, they really become fearful and irrational. They don't even know what they're angry about or who they're supposed to be mad at. And so, like COVID, like lockdown, like mandates, we begin to be driven by fear and we begin to make really irrational decisions and choices. As the Roman Empire expanded, there were hundreds of new religions that were being incorporated into the culture because every nation and people they conquered had their own set of gods, their own way of worshiping. The process is a word called syncretism, where we get our word synchromesh or uh, where you blend two things together. Literally, the word means to amalgamate or combine or unite multiple different religious views into one. And so in this particular case, the ancients were always willing to add a god to their pantheon. And so it really didn't matter who they worshipped. In fact, they just gave them different names. So that for Romans, they had a god, Diana, they worshipped. They simply said that Artis, Artemis was a Greek version of Diana, and they just blended them together. Now, as long as Christianity was a small and uh, ineffectual group of people. Nobody would have paid much attention. They would just ignore them as a, another group of weirdos. But when Christianity began to spread, it became a threat to the established order. As Demetrius complained, Paul has led large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. But again, what was Demetrius's concern? The concern is that the Bible is, says that God, the God of the Bible, is a very exclusive God. He says that there is no other name in John 4 that under, which, under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, and then adds so, that, so we have no misunderstanding, and there is no way to the Father but by me. That's Demetrius' problem. If you want us just to add Jesus to the pantheon, Jesus plus, we're okay. Or if Jesus equal to, or even more particularly, Jesus minus, 
we're good with that. But when you begin to become so exclusive and say, Jesus is the only way, there's no way to heaven except through him, that's when there creates a crisis. But Paul took it even a step further. He said, man-made gods are no gods at all. But think about that for a moment in our own cultural context. People have all sorts of concepts about who God is. I always used to kind of enjoy those conversations when I'd be talking to some elderly gentleman who was coming into the last innings of, of life's ball game. And I'd say, you know, are you prepared for eternity? And they would say things kind of like, well, you know, I've been a pretty good guy, and when I get to heaven, I'm just going to say, Lord, you know, I did my best, and I just, uh, you know, feel like I, I should be allowed to come into heaven, to pass through the purely gates. And I'd say, well, actually what the Bible says Jesus will say is, depart from me, you doer of iniquity, I do not know you. And that, I found out that that's really judgmental. But I always like to point it out to them and saying, this isn't me saying this. If it was left to me, I'd let everybody into heaven, maybe except Hitler. But I would just let everybody in because I don't feel like I deserve to go to heaven outside of the grace of God. I don't think I'm better than you or that you're worse than I am. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the grace of God. But I didn't set the rules. I didn't, I didn't create this reality. God said, I am the way, and there is no other way. It's just really that simple. And so, you know, what you really need to do is go wrestle with the words of Jesus, not with my personality deficiencies. Well, as I said with Demetrius, this was not a, a conflict of faith. This was a con conflict of finances, just as they did with Jesus when the leaders of the Jews said in John 11, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take both away our place and our nation. Taking away our place and our nation. You see, ultimately, when we find the great struggles that take place against Christianity in the world, it always boils down to there's an old order that likes to keep things as they are. And then there's Christianity, which invariably, if it's believed and it's followed, upsets the apple cart. What's important to understand is that, in fact, Christianity did prevail. In fact, not long after this, the city of Ephesus began to have such a large number of Christians that eventually half the city were Christians. There was really no longer any space. And then in 313, religion, Christianity was declared a legal religion. The first Christian emperor, a guy by the name of Constantine I, made it allowable. He didn't make Christianity the state religion. That didn't happen for another 300 years. But he said, it's legal to be a Christian. And then the Christianity flourished around the world and into Asia. What happened eventually in Ephesus? They had an earthquake, the temple fell down, they tried to rebuild it, they got invaded, and eventually it just got silted in by flooding, and the city went into a, uh, a state of reversal, if you will. Now today there's a small village around the ruins of the ancient city, which are quite impressive in themselves. But it's interesting, the least impressive building that you'll see in the city of Ephesus is the Temple of Artemis. And I just can't help but saying, she ain't so great anymore. And that's where I think it's really interesting. What people identify as, as greatness may not be the thing that God considers to be all that great. Because God says the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our God. But we're in an interesting period historical. Historically, because in the first through fourth century in Ephesus, they were going from paganism to Christianity. But worldwide, ever since the Enlightenment era in the 17th, 18th century, we've been moving from a Christian worldview back into a paganistic view. And most people who think they're enlightened would be shocked to find out that what is the prevailing religious philosophy in our country and around the Western world today is nothing any different from the ancient paganism. And when they begin to come against it, they start rioting and setting out to tear it down. 
When you look back a, a few years ago when 574 riots broke out all over America in various cities causing billions of dollars of damage and a large number of deaths, we often think about, was it about race and about economy? No, it's really about whether paganism is going to be the world religion or Christianity is going to dominate. See, contrary to the nonsense espoused in things like the 1619 Project, which has been clearly declared by historians as being just simply propaganda with no historical roots or foundations or sources to it. We talk about critical race theory, which is really not about race. It's about communism. What we find is that the West that we live in today did not prosper as they claimed through racism or, or capitalism or through oppression or violence. In fact, even people like the atheist historian Thomas Holland in his last book called Dominion, The Making of the Western World, he comes to an astounding realization as he develops his understanding of how did the Western world become so impactful. It's interesting, he begins by saying, as Western power retreats, in other words, as we see the Western world beginning to lose ground to the Eastern world, through China and, and, and the Eastern powers that are represented by it, as at Western powers retreat, we've come to realize that these values, what values? Human rights, the inherent dignity of man, the obligation of the rich to the poor are not universal values. In other words, what he began to say is, as I've studied the history of the world, the value system that he just emits, he says it's unique to this period of history and to this part of the world, that it's not something that's been recognized in the East, it's not been recognized in the far North, it's not been recognized in the South. It's something that's unique set of values that just don't inherently come up. He says they are specifically Christian. Now keep in mind, this is an atheist. They're specifically Christian. It took me a long time to realize my morals are not Greek or Roman, but thoroughly Christian. And then he goes on. I think you can read this part. I, I think it survived into the notes. He says, Even though I was not a Christian, all that was good and laudable in the Western world, the sanctity of the individual life, respect for women, racial equality, fairness, care for the poor, and most significantly, protection for the victims of oppression. What secular historians naively granted to the Enlightenment had come as the true gifts of Christianity. You see, when the gospel was presented in the Roman world, up to half of its residents were slaves. And what Christianity did by just viewing a slave, not changing his status, not buying his freedom, but simply viewing him and her through a different lens began to upset the status quo of the Roman world. By simply positing that, that the eyes and the heart of God, there, as he says in Colossians 3.11, there is no slave, nor is there any free, but Christ is all in all and in you all. And with that came not only this recognition of the dignity of the individual, but also the importance of the individual to God himself. That the eye of God is consistently, constantly, unremittingly on mankind and mankind individually as well as collectively. You see, what Christianity did is replace the old order of things of survival of the strongest or uh, might makes right and began to lay a whole new foundation. We might call them pillars that modern secular, modern society was built upon. These four biblical pillars. So that when our founding fathers wrote a document and it says, these things are self-evident, that all men are created in the eyes of God. This was a statement that is not found any other place in the world except the Bible. Basically, our country was founded with this idea of the dignity and the freedom of man as an image bearer of God. Freedom and dignity are our inalienable rights. 
that need to be respected, supported, and protected. That secondly, that marriage and family are sacred institutions. That thirdly, that the moral authority is found in the Bible within the life of the church as much as it follows the Bible. And that lastly, the role of government is to protect and to serve, not to control and govern and oppress. This is really critically important, I think, for you and I to really be clear on because we're living in, to quote our president, a new world order that he says we're going to bring in. And the new world order is not a, a new phrase. I mean, it's been around for the last 50 years but most of us just kind of think about it kind of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, I mean, it's not going to really change a whole lot, you know. The price of gas will go up and it will go down and the market will adjust and so forth and so on. But we fail to realize that people who use that term with that kind of political positioning and importance are saying something much more dramatic, much more dynamic when we find uh, that basically there's a, 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 a pseudo new world order, I don't call it a new world order because the only new world order that we're going to experience is in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation chapter 12. It said the old order will pass away. Now the old order operates on some powerful principles that it cannot control or negate. It's based upon the fact that people are sinful by nature and therefore do things that are evil, and sometimes sell themselves so much to evil that we can define them as being wicked. I mean, that's, that's a progression that the order of the world is in. And people have been trying for centuries to kind of reverse that order and change the world, going into creating utopian societies. Communism promised a new world order, and basically it was just a new world form of disorder and dysfunctionality. It became what we call dystopic. The idea that it's, it's everything is contrary to common sense or the common good because everything is now taken and used to profit only a few elite individuals. This pseudo-New World Order, it has basically four pillars as well, all, as well, and they're a direct opposition and reversal of God's plan. That they basically start out saying, man has no inherent dignity whatsoever. You are nothing more than an animal who came accidentally through a freak of well, we don't know freak of what, but you are a freak of it, whatever it is. Therefore, there's nothing special. You're just another animal. And from dust you came and to dust you'll return and nobody will know that you were here, that mankind is just an object that needs to be herded like cattle. The secondly, they say the family is fungible. You know what that means? You can do with it whatever you want. It's, it's disposable. It's basically not essential. So that basically they say this is a hierarchical con construct that men have created to oppress women and children. And I laugh when I hear that because I know these people clearly are not married. <laughs> Sometimes I think it's created so that children and women can oppress their husbands. But the whole concept and the, the argument behind it is as foolhardy and meaningless and empty as the people who immaturely make it. Thirdly, they'll say religion is malleable, optional, and personal. You have your faith, I have my faith. You believe what you believe, I believe. Hey, ukukachu, we're all the walrus. But what underlies that whole assumption is there's no such thing as absolute truth. And now we've moved from not having absolute truth to not having absolute reality. So that you can declare whatever is your preferred identity. And then when it comes to the government, the government becomes the center of all things. It is led by elite oligarchs who seek to replace God as the provider and the protector of mankind and ultimately becomes the all-powerful authority, the final authority. 
Today, it's being packaged as a great reset. They tell us that this is an opportunity to tear down the old and to build back better. What it is is basically a a neo-Marxist, authoritarian, materialistic, secular, uh, pseudo-scientific fake history mysticism that has long ago given up on the idea that anything can be real or true or absolute. And what's really scary is it seems to be working. Or at least it's working to the point where people no longer argue the point. I mean, when a Supreme Court nominee is asked to define a woman and she says she can't because she's not a biologist. I love that one woman's response. Well, I'm not a vet, but I know what a dog is. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if this person was sitting at your dinner table one evening and they told you that they don't know whether you're a man or a woman because they're not a biologist. And at the same time, we're being told that we're supposed to celebrate that she's the first woman to be nominated, a black woman nominated to the Supreme Court. How do we know that's true? (laughs) There's no biologist on that committee. How can they tell if she actually is a woman who is black and is the first nominee? I think to myself, maybe Clarence Thomas is. And we just didn't know it. Now, I don't want to sound too critical, but I mean, you understand that Clarence Thomas is, you know, he's up there in his 70s now. He's older than I am, and that is old. But that doesn't mean he can't have a, a change of identity. I mean, Bruce Jenner was 52 when he came out and said, I'm Caitlin. But for 52 years, he was Bruce. And for 52 years, he was an icon of athletics. And I get even more confused when Bruce says, I won't call him Caitlin. I get even more confused when Bruce says, men, transgender men should not get involved in women's athletic. So now you're a woman, but you're also a lesbian woman, so you live with a woman so isn't it kind of the same, Bruce? Nothing's really changed? Anyway. I, sometimes I let logic get in the way. But quite honestly, I don't think there was anything, and I'll use this word advisedly, more evil and more wicked than when our current president declared that last Thursday was Transgender Day of Visibility. He said he was doing it for the intent to inform parents, guardians, educators, and other persons supporting children and adolescents with information on what is gender-affirming care and why it is important to transgender, non-binary, and other gender-expansive young people's well-being. Adding, early transgender surgeries... Hormone treatment and affirmation are crucial to the health of kids and teens who identify as transgender and non-binary. Now, aside from the fact that that has no scientific basis whatsoever, there's there's nothing that we can point to as, as being a factual basis for somebody declaring that they are a different identity than what is the obvious identity. To have the President of the United States promote that idea to me is evil at its worst. And just when you think you're safe and you turn on Fox News, they announce that they're bringing Bruce on as one of their contributors. I can only assume because he's a conservative transgender. You see, we need to recognize what's really going on here. As someone once said, if they can convince you that a man can become a woman, and this was said several years ago, if they can convince you that a man can become a woman, they can convince you to believe anything. But I think most powerfully was what Voltaire, the French revolutionary philosopher, said, who himself was an atheist, ironically. 
But he said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. So we see it with the Nazis in Germany. They convinced people of the absurd assertion that because you're Jewish, you're not fully human, and therefore you can be eradicated as vermin. And they created atrocity. They committed atrocities. And there's nothing more absurd that even Hitler wouldn't have gone this far to say that a man can suddenly decide that he is a woman or vice versa. I mean, it's a nonsensical statement. And yet the problem is, is once you begin to stand against that, there's no limit to the atrocities that they will do to silence you. You see, there was nothing more absurd than to say Diana of Artemis was a great god when she didn't exist. And yet people went crazy in order to defend that point of view. And when we watched the destruction take, open up around our country and the idea of defunding the police and all of these other insane ideas that now the same politicians who promoted them are trying to back away from as quickly as possible because I've come to the point of believing that the vast majority of people who are involved in politics are total sociopaths. I say that seriously. They, they have no sense of our concern with what's right or wrong or true. They just want to stay in power. But we need to recognize that all of that was behind that was absurd and untrue and factually incorrect and that anybody who brought that up or mentioned it was censured and silenced and banned. As I expect, I'm still waiting to get banned. Because basically, it can't be defended logically or reasonably or intellectually or factually. It's just something that you are demanded to accept and keep your mouth shut. This is not about sexuality, it's not about gender, it's not about identity. It's all about destroying the foundations upon which Western civilization was built and replacing it with a whole new system. That there's a move away from a government that is nationalistic and representative and democratic. That increasingly, progressives are urging the president to rule by executive order, something that he doesn't have the legal right to do. But for some reason, people in government are allowed to break the rules and there's no consequences. They want to replace it with a global feudalism. Now, what's feudalism? Feudalism is the way that the world ran in the Middle Ages, when you had a lord over a region and everybody else was his servant. Most people don't realize that for most of Russian history, everybody was a serf, which meant basically they were a slave who belonged to the emperor, the czar. And so as a consequence, most people had no upward mobility, but the czar and his family and those who reigned with him were unbelievably wealthy. The czar Nicholas, the last of the czars, Nicholas II, was, had four times the wealth of Queen Victoria who was considered to be the wealthiest monarch in the world at that time, and he exceeded her four times over. How did he get so wealthy? He owned everything, including the people that walked in the streets and worked in his factories. The desire of this global feudalism ruled by a select group of elites that even in the World Economic Forum statement of their goals for the year 2030, the very first thing is they declare an end to personal property. A system in which the elites control your property, that you and I become only tenants upon the place where we live, that we're allowed, obliged to give them their homage, to give them our labor, and to give all of our product, production in exchange for their protection. You see, they really don't like the idea of we the people. It's all about we the elites. And if you've read anything or really gotten into the heads of some of these people like the Bill Gates and the Zuckerbergs and a whole list of these individuals, they actually believe that they are 
evolved beyond us, that they're of a higher order of being than you and me. And so, therefore, they should be the ones who are controlling the planet because, after all, we're just emitting too much methane in the air. They want to reduce your carbon footprint so they don't have to reduce theirs and they can make theirs bigger. That secondly, they want the marginalization of the family. That marriage, we're being told, is archaic. I was talking to my father-in-law the other day and, and we were talking about how that some people say, well, marriage is just a piece of paper. And I said, absolutely. And uh, lots of things are just a piece of paper. The title to your car, the deed to your home, can, you, can I take those worthless pieces of paper and keep them for myself? <laughs> a marriage contract is literally that. It's a contractual agreement. And that's why you have to go to the courts and figure it out if you get a divorce. Or as some people say, well, people should live together before they get married because it's just like I don't buy a car without first taking it on a test drive. Yeah, but if you don't bring it back, they're going to put you in jail. You're stealing something and claiming as your own something that is not yours. And when a man lives with a woman without the commitment of marriage or vice versa, you are stealing something that is not your rightful ownership. You're violating the law of God. You're taking something that God said is sacred that he has put together and you're treating it as if it's just a Dixie cup to be wadded up and thrown in the trash. What's really disturbing to me is I've had Christians say, well, you're being so harsh. You know, I got this millennial or zeer that I brought to church and they were offended by your tone and by the lovelessness of your comments. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> marriage is archaic. <laughs> We're told that sex is all recreational. The children belong to the states, not to their parents. The, 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 the schools should be able to determine what's best for your kids and tell them what to believe. The family is to be replaced by some kind of government collective or educational institution, ensuring that, in the end, that all loyalties are to the state and the state alone. You see, we have to understand that what it's really doing is getting rid of the marriage, getting rid of the family, getting rid of the church, and who becomes the ultimate authority? It becomes singly, the state will tell us what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And that's really where I find myself the most, most pain today is what I think is the neutering of the church. The, what I use the word neutering advisedly because what it really implying to is robbing us from our reproductive capacity by getting us to embrace things that aren't biblical. The church, the government wants the church to be dependent and compliant on the state. And the state wants to define for us what is virtuous and what is moral. And ultimately, that was what was behind the clearly unscientific lockdown of churches. And most people just, even though we know above and beyond and beyond any doubt, and even though Dr. Fauci still talks about lockdowns as being a good thing, all of the empirical evidence that's been done and studies have been done for decades says not only do they not work, but they're damaging. And right now, the states that have the highest rate of COVID infection are the states who had the strongest, firmest lockdowns. And that's happening internationally as well. Because there is a thing called herd immunity. I heard it on the grapevine. <laughs> but the temptation for us and when we see these kind of problems is to see them as primarily a political struggle. And so a lot of Christians are going, just wait till next November. <laughs> We're going to set this right. We are in a serious spiritual battle that can only be won through confession and prayer.
same-sex marriage, gender fluidity, are not about sex. They're about deconstructing the sacred character of marriage itself and of the family and replacing the primacy of the family and society with a government institution. That the forced closing of our churches, as I said, was not based upon science. It was based upon compliance, based upon an acknowledgement that the governed has the authority over the church, even though the Constitution says just the opposite. It's about replacing the church's role in society as the moral voice of freedom and of the family and replacing it with the rule of an endless list of Fauci's. See, Satan and those in his employ know what the, prophet, what the psalmist was talking about when he said in Psalm 11, if the foundations are destroyed, there is nothing the righteous can do. As one paraphrase put it, when basically it said, good people don't have a chance. And that's what we are dealing with. Not the physical foundations, although they will come down as well, but the spiritual foundations, the moral foundations, the philosophical foundations, the worldview, the way people would wake up in the morning and look at the world around them has been completely reversed. And we've gone from other-centeredness to self-centeredness. So what are you and I supposed to do? Well, I tell you quite honestly, don't be silent and don't give up. You see, when I look at the life of Paul, I realize here was a guy that didn't know how to keep silent. He would have been considered impolite and not very nice. I mean, he blinded one guy that was arguing with him. What he knew was preaching and the persecution that would follow. And yet today, according to Barner Research, 63% of Bible-believing, church-attending, spiritually-minded Christians say, quote-unquote, my spiritual life is eternal, entirely private. And when we go there, the enemy wins. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying something like that? I have a message of hope, but... I can't tell it to you because it's private. We find in the church today that the gospel of Christ crucified has been supplanted with a gospel of prosperity. And even churches like our own who would say we reject the prosperity theology don't realize that we have been mentally programmed to believe in prosperity. Just measure yourself. When things are going well, the bank account is full, everything seems to be free, the price of gas has, has shrunk down to $7 a gallon, and you look at it and say, this is the way it should be in my world. Isn't this wonderful? But when it goes the other way, when your health fails and your income fails and life gets difficult and people are in opposition, you turn around and say, why, God, Why? You see, we measure our view of God based upon how prosperous we are in whatever arena we feel that we need to be prosperous. We feel that God owes us a good time. This gospel of prosperity has had a ravaging effect upon the church. The church pastors have become wealthy celebrities whole websites dedicated to preachers in sneakers and guys sporting $2,000, $3,000 tennis shoes. And I bet they can't even do a layup. <laughs> the church's message is specialized in happiness therapy. And our worship is measured by its entertainment value as we sit back and wait to be impressed rather than seeing worship as something that we enter into. A friend of mine told me that the lady came to him after a service and said, the worship wasn't very good this week. And he said, madam, it wasn't designed for you. It was designed for God. When I first got saved, we knew nothing about contemporary Christian music. My wife had a record with... Tennessee Ernie Ford singing the favorite hymns of the gospel. That was, you know, I mean, I figured, what the heck? 
And we would sit. I remember sitting in my 51 Chevy panel truck. I've got pictures of it still with my fro. <laughs> and we'd sit back there and somebody would have a guitar and we'd sit in a group and we'd sing worship songs. And it was beautiful because we were worshiping. We weren't trying to entertain anybody. I wrote a lot of Christian songs in my early days. And as I began to share them, people began to say to me, bro, you shouldn't blame that on God. <laughs> that's when you realize that maybe that's not your calling or your gifting. But I often wonder if the Apostle Paul was concerned about this very dynamic when he said to the Corinthians in his second letter, he says, if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach. One of the most successful and famous TV evangelists said to a friend of mine, he said, see this watch I'm wearing? And he said, yeah, it's nice. He says, this watch cost $100,000. And he said, Benny, oh, excuse me. He said, why do you need a $100,000 watch? And he said, because if Jesus was here, this is the watch he'd be wearing. That's a different Jesus. Or if you receive a different spirit, or you receive a different gospel, he said, those are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as the apostles of Christ. Here's my word to you. Resist the narrative. Just resist the narrative, no matter what the source it's from. Step back and say, is that scripture? Is that Bible? And the way you know that is, the best way to resist the narrative is some very simple things. Number one, read the Bible. Read the word. Number two, know the word. Don't just say, I don't understand what it's talking about and move on. Know it, what it says. Speak or preach that word. And I put in my notes, don't be silent. This morning I changed it. Don't be silent because you live the word. One thing that always impressed me about the Apostle Paul in the times that he lived in, perilous, dangerous times, that when danger came, he didn't run away from it. He ran towards it. He had to be restrained from going into the arena because I often wonder in his mind, he's thought, when am I going to get a chance to talk to this many people at one time? <laughs> it may kill me. <laughs> I pray that you and I could begin to develop that kind of passion for the things of God. Father, I pray that you'd help us. We are pilgrims and we often are strugglers. That we assume that we live in a Christian culture and yet this culture has moved far away that most observers of culture say we are in a post-Christian era and more and more I see each generation has less regard for your word and more and more embrace things that stand in stark contradiction. Father, I pray that you would awaken your church in this nation. We pray that every single day, God, that there would come a great awakening in the church, that we would suddenly rise out of our stupor and our slumber and we would begin to pour our hearts out because you promised that if we confess our sins that we would be forgiven. And our nation is guilty of horrific sins. Lord, I pray that you would just move in our lives, that we would begin to say, God, have mercy upon us. Awaken your church because it's the only hope. The rot is too deep and too complete that only the miracle of God can change the trajectory we are on. So God, we cry out to you. We plead with you. We pray that you'd save our nation because it has been, it has turned its back, its heart back to God. We ask this in Jesus' name.